The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Then I realized that my text was a Christmas text. So, I'm going to read it, and you see if you see Christmas in here. Isaiah 51, verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Merry Christmas. A plea for God to save as He did in the Exodus. This text is just loaded with what we call biblical theology. How does the Bible progress, integrate, and climax in the person of Christ? And we're going to go from Genesis to Revelation this morning, and it's, it's exciting. And I, I pray that as you get this glimpse of our servant Savior, that your, height, your hearts will, will heighten in awe and glory. This is coming right off of where we were for the last three weeks. In Isaiah 50, the, from verse 4 to 11, the servant Savior Himself, this servant person who is the king that Isaiah has been anticipating, He actually talks to us and declares more of His mission. A mission that includes deep suffering and it includes teaching. And then in Isaiah 51, 1-8, The call is, will you be one who listens to Him? Following Him, heeding Him. Is is His law on your heart? Are you embracing His passion for justice? And now we get a glimpse of Israel in despondency, feeling like God is distant and calling Him to wake up. They, They think He's sleeping. So they say, awake, awake. Put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Now, one of the awesome things about the God of the Bible that stands against the gods of the ancient world is that our God doesn't sleep. I thought about bringing in an extended reading that I have from the ancient world. It's called The Gods of the Night. And it's a prayer that that we've... Uh, found. It's 3,000 years old. And in this prayer, it talks about the fact that all the main heavy, heavyweight gods are sleeping. And so, the person who is burdened in the middle of the night doesn't know who he should talk to. And so, he begins to cry out, is there any gods up there that are awake right now? In contrast to that, what we have is a God who proclaims 
He will not let your foot to be moved. He who keeps you does not slumber. The one who keeps, guards, protects Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. We woke up this morning to fresh mercy. Every dawn, fresh mercy. And it's because God was up all night preparing it for you. When the alarm went off, when the sleep was wiped out of the eyes, God was bright and chipper, ready to pour forth mercies that were purchased for us 2,000 years ago, right in our direction. The cry is, wake up! And the answer is, I am! And yet, yet there are seasons of life, and Isaiah's Israel was definitely in the midst of one, where it seemed as though God was far off because sin, the sins that abounded around it had just made the world so dark. And sometimes we feel that. It can happen personally, it can happen at the national level. Right now I'm reading Unbroken. And all of Louis Zimper, that guy, all of his excitement, he, he was anticipating to go to the 1940 Olympics, and I just read they got canceled. Why? Because the entire world broke into war and Pearl Harbor happened, drawing the U.S. into it. The darkness is real. The curse is real. And often, God simply gives people over to their debased mind, gives them over to their immorality, as the spirit that was alive and well at the Tower of Babylon, Babel, that spirit of pride, that spirit of self-reliance, the spirit that says, my way, not God's way, as it just continues to pervade, so that the Bible can use this image of Babylon, that's the image when we get to Revelation, Babylon is the enemy. And in every part of the world, uh, this, this world force can take different forms. The darkness, the way that the, the devil chooses to deceive, looks different in different cultures. It looks different in Nigeria than it does here. And yet it's just as much Babylon. And people are plugged in, not recognizing that they live in Babel. Very much like the movie from the end of the 90s, The Matrix. How many people saw The Matrix? A fair number, okay. So you've got a world that thinks all is well, but really they're plugged in. They're enslaved to something. And if you caught a glimpse of what the, the real world was like, not the world that everyone thinks is going on, but the actual world, it's dark, it's broken, it's filled with... with wickedness and pain. And yet, people live as if all is well. And so, the theme of the first movie was unplug as many brains as possible from the massive computer so that they can actually see, be saved from the deception. And the devil is filling this world with deception. We have a God who is not asleep, who is awake, and he is entering into our world to save. This is a beautiful statement here that's, it, that uh, we read. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. So I took time, I just punched that into my concordance, 
What do I learn about the arm of God in Isaiah? That's, that's who the, those who are pleading, who they're calling to, to move, to act. They're calling this, this arm of Yahweh to come and act on their behalf. Here's what we read. It's, it's awesome. Number one, God's arm is the means by which he rules. Behold, the Lord Yahweh comes with might. His arm rules for him. It's the means by which God fights. The Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon. His arm shall be against the Chaldeans. In God's arm, the coastlands hope. That's the farthest reaches of the globe. The gospel will reach that far, says Isaiah. And those that are on the outskirts are longing for Yahweh to rise. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out. My arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me. And for my arm they wait. This is the turning point of the arm texts. God's arm is actually a person. It's not just God seated on the throne. It's God seated on the throne in the person of His servant, Savior, King. Notice. Who has believed what He has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For He grew up before Him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom? You know, the one who grew up like a young shoot. He was small. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. That's the arm of God. That the very one who fights on behalf of His people, the very one who rules, the very one in whom the the coastlands hope is displayed, represented, reflected, resembled in, embodied in a person who would suffer on behalf of the world. The servant Savior Himself. God's arm is the only means to save, we learn. He saw that there was no man in all the world. And He wondered that there was no one to intercede on behalf of His people. Then His own arm brought Him salvation and His righteousness upheld Him. I looked, but there was no one to help, God says. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So, my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. God's arm is the hope of Isaiah, and God's arm is a person. So, as we're we're the, the... readers of this book, and we're walking through, and here we are on the cusp of Isaiah 53, where the arm is going to be designated as a person, and the cry is, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Now this arm is the very one that has worked in the past, and it's because he worked in the past 
that it gives hope for the future. Now, before I read this text, let's just read the rest. Awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in the days of old. When? When did the arm of God show up in the past as a Savior, a strong and mighty Deliverer? The generations of long ago, was it not you, O arm of the Lord, who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? That sounds cool. Definitely not Anne of Green Gables-ish. It's more like Lord of the Rings, right? Who pierced the dragon. The whole Bible. Kill the dragon, get the girl. That's what the Bible's about. We see it right here. That the dragon showed up in the past. You, O arm of the Lord, are the one who, who pierced him. Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass? What's that talking about? When did the arm of the Lord show up in the past? The Exodus. So, why doesn't it mention the Exodus? Why doesn't it mention Pharaoh? What, what instead I read is Rahab and the dragon. Was Rahab and the dragon back there? Okay, you're thinking of Rahab the harlot. Yeah, they, that's the Rahab that we all know of most, but there is another Rahab, and it's strange that, I mean, it, it's not, it doesn't jump off the page why Egypt is tagged Rahab. Look at Isaiah 63. We're not there yet, but it's coming. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them by his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Where is he? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you, O God, led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. There's something about this original event called the Exodus that's giving hope for something more. Look at here. Say therefore to the people of Israel, this is Exodus 6.6, 6, I am the Lord, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, I'll deliver you from slavery to them, I'll redeem you, how? With my outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Now here's something interesting in light of what we just saw in Isaiah 53, that the arm of God is the servant Savior. Here's how Jude talks. I want to remind you, although... You once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Have you ever read the book of Exodus and found Jesus there? Remember whom Moses saw at the burning bush. He's called, in some translations, the messenger of Yahweh. In others, the angel of the Lord. But he was like a man. 
Take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. This is how you know that it's I who send you to Egypt. I will bring you back to this very place. Exodus 3.12 The burning bush happens at Mount Sinai, and it's that glowing, burning presence that goes with Moses back to Egypt to deliver them from Egypt in order that he might bring them back to Sinai and then beyond the land. No one has seen the Father, Jesus said. But if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So who was it in the burning bush? Who was this this being that spoke Yahweh? Moses conversed with Yahweh and Yahweh said to him. That's how the text is written. He sees a person, much like Isaiah saw a person in Isaiah chapter 6, when he got entered into the glory, the, the glory presence of God, and he saw one seated on the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. He saw a person seated on the throne, and no one has seen the Father. So who did you see? And John 12 tells us he saw Jesus, the glory of the one who would come, who yet did not have that name. But he was there at the Exodus. He was the warrior of the Exodus. And the anticipation is, in light of what he did then, he will do it again. If you say in your heart, on the cusp of entering into the land, so Israel left Egypt, they're at Mount Sinai, they go to the land the first time, they're at Kadesh Barnea, they send in 12 spies, 10 of them come back and say the giants are too big, they get 38 more years in the land because of their lack of faith. Numbers 14.11 How long will you not believe? And then after those complete 40 years in the wilderness, 38 years of judgment, Moses comes back and gives them the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, if you say in your heart, these nations that we're supposed to overcome due to their wickedness and not due to our righteousness, these nations that we're supposed to overcome are greater than we are. How can we dispossess them? Don't be afraid, Moses says. But you shall remember what Yahweh your God did to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. He did something great back then in defeating the greatest, biggest, most massive army of the ancient world. Through Moses, God overcame them. So if God did not spare all the authority of heaven to overcome the greatest enemy, how much more will He graciously give you everything else. That's the logic. Here it is. Don't be afraid of those small nations that are in front of you. Just remember what God did in your past to Pharaoh, to all of Egypt, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which Yahweh your God brought you out so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. What he's doing is he's reading the first Exodus not only 
as a reality of the past, but he's reading it as prophecy. That if God defeated the biggest enemy in the past, you can be certain, looking at that story, that he's got your back. And he can defeat every other enemy that's in front of you. He's reading it predictively as if it, what what we would call it in my classroom, is typology. It's a type. It's a picture. The, The first exodus is a picture intended by God to point to a greater defeat of the enemy, a greater exodus. That's how Moses is reading it. When you see him defeat the Pharaoh, it should give you hope that every other time someone like Pharaoh shows up, God is greater and God is able. Here's the comparison that we read. Look with me at 51, second half of verse 9 and 10. Was it not you, O God... O arm of the Lord, who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon. Now there's two sides here, the Rahab side and the dragon side, and I want to tackle them both. First of all, Rahab. Rahab, according to Isaiah 30, is Egypt. When we think Rahab, we're supposed to think, okay, he's, he's using this word as a designation for a people. Here it is. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Don't look to them. They're not your help. I'm your help. Therefore, I have called Egypt Rahab who sits still. Here's the Psalter. You crushed Rahab, O God, like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Thinking about the Exodus. So just put in your mind, Rahab equals Egypt. And what we read here is, was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces? Egypt is the one that got cut down. But that's not it. He chooses this word, dragon. Now, in Isaiah 27, we we looked at this text before, we read this. In that future day, when death will be destroyed, when I'll bring peace to the world, ultimately through my servant king, in that day, the Lord with His hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and He will slay the dragon in the sea. Now that's the only other occurrence of dragon in this whole book. And in this text, I think... It's identified directly with the devil. And the anticipation here is that one day, the serpent from Genesis 3.15, that deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, that sought to put them to death, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die, that serpent will ultimately meet its end. And what's amazing here is that the Pharaoh is being linked with the serpent. 
And what is true of the past is somehow supposed to point us to the future. Here's Ezekiel. Behold, I'm against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the streams, that says, my Nile is my own. I made it for myself. What we we have to see is that the prophets are somehow reading not only the Exodus as a pointer, a, a prophetic event that anticipates a greater event, they're actually viewing the very Pharaoh that tried to kill an army of babies and destroy Israel, whom Exodus 4.22 tells us is God's son. Israel is my firstborn son. The entire nation is the son of God. And just like Adam was the son of God, God made male and female, in His image, in His likeness. Genesis chapter 5, verse 1. And Adam gave birth to a son in His image, in His likeness. This imageness, this likeness, just as Adam had a son and named him Seth, God had a son and named him Adam. And so in Luke chapter 3, in Jesus' genealogy, it takes us all the way back to Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. In the garden, the serpent tried to kill the son of God. At the Exodus, the Pharaoh, taking on the role of the serpent, as one of the offspring of the serpent, tried to kill the son of God. And here he's called the dragon. Here's Genesis 3.15. The promise, the very first gospel promise, good news promise of hope, salvation, deliverance in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, O serpent, the one who's operating, who's in his being the personification of all that is evil. He is the devil himself. From the beginning, he has been a liar, a murderer, Jesus says. I will put enmity between you, serpent, and between the woman, between your offspring. So the devil's going to have offspring, and it's not a bunch of snakes. Think more like Jesus in his dialogue with the Pharisees. You say that you are children of Abraham. I tell you, you are children of your father, the devil. We're talking about spiritual identification. And in Genesis, there's two family trees. The whole book is dominated by genealogy. The genealogy that is hoping in the offspring, this offspring right here, he, the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head serpent, but you will bruise his heel. So half, half of the book is focused on the line of promise, those remnant few in this world who are hoping in this good news promise, hoping in the day when the offspring will rise and crush the head of the serpent. And then the rest of the book is controlled by the rebel. And the rebel begin 
to fill the world, and they're destroyed at the flood. The rebel expand more and try to build a tower that reaches the heavens, and God disperses them in the Tower of Babylon, the Tower of Babel. And then they're growing, and they're kind of in the backdrop, and we end the book of Genesis learning that Israel gets placed in the midst of a famine right in the heart of Egypt. But Genesis has set us up to know that Israel is housing the remnant. All the rest of the world is rebel. That is, the rest of the world is offspring of the devil. It sets us up to say, well, who's the king of those offspring? Pharaoh. Notice, just I think Exodus itself, if you're careful to track it, the book itself is setting us up to see that the devil is the sorry that Pharaoh is being identified with the serpent. Here's God in Exodus 3. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt. When God stretches out his hand, that's his arm. When he stretches out his hand, the purpose is to put bring judgment on Egypt. Now, that happens at the very end of Exodus 3. Take out the chapter division and you just go down. It's just a few verses after this. We read this. And the Lord said, Stretch, throw down your staff to the ground, Moses. So Moses threw his staff on the ground and what did it do? It turned into a serpent. This is the second time I mean, this is the, the very next time after we read about the serpent in Genesis 3, this is the next time it shows up in the Bible. So, then what does it say? And so there's the serpent now on the ground. The staff is thrown down. It turns into this serpent. All of a sudden, all the bells go off in our mind. Serpent, that's not a good thing. And it, it's identified because Moses runs away. He's scared of this evil. And then what does God say to do? Just a few verses after he's identified, I will stretch out my hand against Egypt. Very next line, stretch out. I mean, the ESV changed the the wording, but it's the exact same verb. Stretch out your hand and catch the serpent by the tail. So he's fearing... This is all right in the midst of his call narrative. Go talk to Pharaoh. Tell him, let my people go. The serpent is on there. It's scary. And God says, no, don't be afraid. Reach out. Stretch out your hand. Moses is being pictured as God himself who's going to work against Egypt. The serpent is the picture of Egypt. Now, we don't have to go outside the Bible, but we could and recognize that it was the cobra goddess that was Pharaoh's chief protector. And this is why he had the cobra on his headdress. That's how he's portrayed it all during this period in Israel's history. That's how he's always portrayed. But the Bible, but, so this is part of the assumption. I think. Moses' audience would have known that. They would have known that Pharaoh is identified with the serpent always. But 
remove that historical background, which is outside the Bible, and I'm saying it's setting us up to already build the tie. We don't have to go outside the Bible to see that, that Moses is stretching out his hand and catching the serpent. He's doing the same thing that God just promised he would do against Pharaoh. What does God say here? Seventh plague. By now, Pharaoh, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you. I could have already done it. But I had bigger things in store. I could have wiped out your people already. But instead, I want my name to be known throughout the earth, had I included 16. That's why I haven't stretched out my hand yet. And then we get to Exodus 15, celebrating what he's done, and it says specifically, he has, using a different verb this time, I have stretched out my hand against Pharaoh and brought judgment on the gods of Egypt. There's this connection here. And it reaches all the way into the future. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, Paul says. What's the image here? We don't, don't just think destruction of the enemy by the church include in it now all the imagery of the exodus. This is about freedom from slavery. Freedom from the one who want, who's wanted to kill you and destroy you, to, to deceive you from thinking that you're weak or that you're enslaved. And the answer is, I will put him down. And he's going to be put under your feet. And God sees the dragon, that ancient serpent. It was one of his angels, actually. Just an angel sees the dragon. Who is the devil and Satan? The ancient serpent, who is the devil? Who is Satan? And he bound him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan, that is the serpent, will be released from his prison. And the devil who has deceived them was then thrown, he's, he's unpacking his vision, he was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. The end of the serpent. Our text says, Was it not you, O God, O arm of the Lord, who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over? Now this is already, this is loaded with um, imagery that Isaiah has already taken us on a journey to see. Notice right where he goes next. In light of, was it not you who did all this greatness in the past against the personification of the dragon in Egypt, it gives us hope that there's more coming. And Isaiah's talked about that more that is coming, and he's pinpointed it on already the servant king. So let's just take a journey and see, verse 11, how it's unpacked. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. That's Jerusalem. Think about a gathering, a global gathering of enslaved people who are now gathering to Jerusalem. Where have we seen that in Isaiah? Who remembers? Any place? Isaiah 42? Is that what you said? What did you see there? Bringing justice to all the nations. 
Isaiah 2. The mountain of the house of the Lord will become higher than all the other mountains. And the peoples, indeed all the nations, will gather to that place. The ransomed of the Lord are are going to be saved, delivered. Look at these texts. A second exodus with complete defeat of the serpent. I think that's what we're seeing here. If he defeated, if he's the God who defeated the dragon in the exodus, it gives us hope that the ultimate defeat of the dragon is coming. And so when we read about the ransomed of the Lord, those whom he purchases out of slavery into freedom, gathering to his sacred space, we're supposed to anticipate with that the complete defeat of the devil, and therefore joy comes. Now here's Christmas. Have you ever pictured the second exodus and the defeat of the serpent directly tied to the texts that are used in Matthew related to Jesus' birth? Let's check it out. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. What does Jesus mean? Yahweh saves. Yahweh saves. Jesus. Name him this. And embodied in that name is all of the history related to God as Savior. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, of, by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 7.14. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So that shot me back into Isaiah 7, which we looked at last year, and all of a sudden I just re- allowed myself to recall the journey that Isaiah takes us on, that Matthew would assume we as the reader, he gives us the trigger, the very first text about a child, and what the child would do, what the child would bring. And I just want to recall for us where, what we've seen. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Yeah, right. That Matthew tells us. Okay. God with us. Something about this child is so personally identified with God himself that in his presence we're with God. It's as if he's part of God, like the arm of God. Isaiah 9, 6. So first we read that a virgin's going to conceive and bear a son. Now we read that the child is going to be born and will have massive authority and four awesome, personally pastoral, victorious names. Wonderful counselor. Meaning, the one who is guiding and orchestrating all things in perfect wisdom. Miraculously so. The word for wonderful there, same word for, is anything too impossible for God? No. Impossible. Miraculous. Wonderful. He's not only the wonderful counselor, he is the mighty God. I mean, you can't get more close to God than that. That's Jesus' name. 
He is mighty God. And there's nothing more mighty than Him. There's no obstacle that is too big in your life for Him to overcome, be it sin or brokenness, pain, hurt, reconciliation. He's the only one to whom we should look. Everlasting Father. Pastor Jason helped us just gain redefinition of fatherhood this morning. He is operating here, I think, as the extension of Abraham's fatherhood of a multitude of nations. That's what was promised. Abraham was a father of one nation in the Old Covenant, and then through Christ, he becomes the father of a multitude of nations. He is the first, it's almost like Abraham was the first king in a dynasty of kings that would culminate in Messiah Jesus. Jesus is standing as an everlasting provider and protector for those who are in him. Unfailing, ever-present, and ever-able. Prince of Peace. Reconciler, chaos overcomer, perfectly. How about this one? What I want to do now is bring together the child and the second exodus and the serpent. All of it comes together in Isaiah 11. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb... The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. Now, many people think that that means they they just act as though the wolf and the lion and the leopard, uh, even a child's not going to have to be scared. But up to this point in Isaiah... The child that's been in focus is the coming Emmanuel, king child. And most Isaiah scholars think that the lion, the lamb, the wolf, the lamb, the leopard, the young goat, these are actually pictures of nations rather than animals. Just as in Daniel chapter 7, the nations of the world are portrayed as beasts, that what's at stake here is that there's going to be the perfect peace that Isaiah 2 testified would come when all the war implements are thrown out and everything turns into garden tools. What I want us to focus on here is that it's a child, and I think it's the Emmanuel child, who will lead them. And the question is, where is he taking them? He's leading them somewhere. These creatures that are now at perfect peace with one another. Notice what we also learn about the child. So the cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. I'm proposing don't just generalize these to say, wow, it's going to be a place of perfect peace. Yes, it is, but it's because the child king has come and he's brought judgment on the cobra, brought judgment on the adder, 
so that there is no fear for anyone. And it's bound up in a child of all things. This word, nursing child, the ESV translated, it doesn't translate it that way anywhere else. The term is exactly the same term that we see in Isaiah 53 applied to Jesus. He grew up like a tender shoot, without form, without majesty. In fact, if, I'm, if I recall rightly, that's the only other place in the book that that word shows up. Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 53. I think we're talking about the one who would lead all the nations somewhere. Where are they going? And they need not fear the serpent anymore. And it's all in a child. It's all bound up in what Christmas is about. Where are they going? In that day, sorry, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Where are they going? Where is he leading them? To the holy mountain of God. You have not come to a mountain burning with fire, Mount Sinai of old. Hebrews 12 says, You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Zion, the dwelling place of God, that's where you've come already today if you are in Christ. You've been led by the child king and you need not fear the serpent. He's taken you out of slavery to something greater than the slavery that Pharaoh brought. He's freed you from lies, freed you from the burden of sin, freed you from fear of death. The text continues. In that day. Now all of this, Isaiah 11 opens with the Spirit of the Lord. uh, I will raise up a branch from the root of Jesse. Jesse was David's father. We're expecting a new greater David. I'll raise up a branch like the Garden of Eden. A new Garden of Eden. This branch will grow up out of the root of Jesse. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. A spirit of wisdom and a spirit of justice. And he will bring justice to the nations and righteousness will be the belt of his waist. And justice, the shoes on his feet, he'll have an armor of God. And it's in that context then that we read the lion will lay down with the lamb. It's already set us up to say this is the servant king upon whom the Spirit of God is resting And then, where do they go? They go to the mountain of God, like Isaiah 2 anticipated. In that day, the Lord will extend, sorry, verse 10, which is quoted by Paul and applied to Gentiles coming to to Christ today. In that future day, the day of Christ, the day of peace, in that day, the root of Jesse, that's the Messiah, an offspring of Jesse, in the line of David, will stand as a signal, a banner for the peoples, plural. Of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people. A second time? When was the first time? The Exodus. We're going to have a new exodus, Isaiah envisions, that's going to be led by the Messiah, the servant, savior, king, child. 
who's going to overcome the devil and he will raise a signal for the nations and he will assemble the banished of Israel and gather to the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. From Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, you will be my witnesses. And he's gathering, in gathering right now, making disciples of the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he's with us always to the end of the age. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. After the wise guys left, Joseph, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So in one image we have You know, he's going to come in, he's going to destroy the babies in Bethlehem, very much like Pharaoh did to the babies in Egypt. Herod is somewhat like another serpent. And then, we read this, get the boy, Jesus, who is the Son of God, get the Son, just like Israel was the Son of God, get the Son to Egypt, because it is written... So he rose, took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt. They remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. Now that's this first Exodus text in Hosea 11. I called my son out of Egypt. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. But they sinned. They went far away from me. I redeemed them from the slavery to Pharaoh. And yet sin multiplied. And so I declared to them, look what he says, they shall not return to the land of Egypt. Or it could be, you'll see the ESV footnote, they shall surely return to the land of Egypt in judgment. And Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. So if they don't come to me as their Savior, I redeemed them out of Egypt the first time. If they refuse to come to me, then I'm going to put them back into slavery. But then look at what it says at the end. They shall go after the Lord. They're in exile. He will roar like a lion when he roars. His children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt. And like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return to them to their homes, declares the Lord. Out of Egypt I called my son the first time, and the promise is I will call my son out of Egypt a second time. And what's happening with Jesus in Matthew, after the wise men leave, and they don't go back to Jerusalem because they knew God had told the wise men, Herod's up to something. So they don't listen to Herod. God talks to Joseph. I am readying to redeem my people. Your son is the Savior of the world. And as a picture that gives hope for what I'm about to do, that is bring about the second exodus, I want him in his body to take a journey of his own exodus out of Egypt. And his very operating, fulfilling 
Out of Egypt I have called my son. That is, originally it was the son, Israel, the nation. But then Jesus takes on representing the nation. He becomes Israel, the son, the person. And if Jesus, representing the people, had his own first exodus, it anticipates that he will lead the second exodus. So at the Mount of Transfiguration, who shows up? Moses and Elijah. I'll just focus on Moses right now. Moses comes and what's he talk to Jesus about? And behold, two men were talking with him, with Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus. Now the ESV translates it as departure. But it has the footnote, Exodus. It's the only time it shows up, the term for Exodus. When, where is it supposed to happen? He was about to accomplish his Exodus in Jerusalem. That's where he would free people from their sins and lead them on a new path of righteousness. Awake! Put on strength, O arm of the Lord! Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, and made the depths of sea away for the redeemed to pass over? Oh yes, it was. And I know confidently that the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion. They'll do it with singing, with everlasting joy upon their heads. And they'll obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is what Christmas is about. It's about following Jesus in His exodus. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil, the deceiver of the world. He was thrown down to the earth. His angels were thrown down with Him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now! The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Messiah have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, the one who accuses them day and night before our God. And they, the ones that He came to redeem, they have conquered the serpent. How? By the blood of the Lamb. What this says, Isaiah 51.11, is that the ransomed of the Lord will come with shouts of joy. That there will be gladness, no sorrow, no sighing. So let it be nurtured. Remind yourself of the hope that Christmas brings. The serpent has been conquered. He has triumphed over all the powers of darkness at the cross already. And because of that, you and I, He holds no legal claim against anyone who is in Christ. Who is He to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who right now is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. No one can bring any charge against God's elect. Because we're following Him in the Exodus. 
And we can be confident that the waters of judgment will fall and they will not fall on us. Now, if I had an additional hour, I would go and I'd talk about how the very next occurrence of serpent in the Bible is Numbers 21. Even as the as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. All of this hinges on the fact that Christ identifies Himself wholly with sin, curse, even taking on the form of the serpent in order to save. But we don't have time for that. So, <laughs> let me pray. Father, we want to have a Merry Christmas regardless of the situation around us. Regardless of how dark it gets, light has come and we rejoice that the serpent slayer is for us and not against us. We rejoice that the devil's end is sure and that You are leading us through this wilderness to our home. And we look forward to it in Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.